morning. My name is Jordan. Uh, today we're continuing our ODR series, which stands for Orientation, Disorientation, and Reorientation. Um, and in theme with 2023, we, are use, we have been using stories of the Bible and also from our pastors on the first week um, on the panel um, to kind of go through this series. And I've been really loving that, um, kind of like I mentioned before, not because it's a prescriptive thing and we have to follow each character that we're studying, but more just because stories could be so rich and we can connect to them many times in ways that we can't if we were to learn these lessons through other ways. So um, we're continuing this series by talking about Esther today, and I would not recommend doing exactly what the characters in Esther do, but I think we could still learn a lot from her story. Um, so Esther is really interesting because this book of the Bible doesn't mention God, um, and so it's a little controversial in that way. But I think for us that makes it like a little bit more relatable because in our own lives we don't explicitly see like God is doing this or like God sometimes reveals to us right like what we're doing, but it's not every step of the way we're not always knowing exactly what God is doing and how he's working explicitly in our lives. And so I think with our own lives and with this book, it's an invitation to seek out and look for how God is moving. So really quickly, I'm gonna to try to recap the story. It's a very high level summary, um, just to give you some of the highlights. Um, and so we're gonna start with King Xerxes of Persia, Persia. The book opens with him and this huge long party that he throws for celebration, celebrating himself. Um, and after months of partying, it mentions that he has many drinks and he wants to show off his queen, Queen Vashti, who he's married to, right? And, probably wants her to flaunt her in her birthday suit, if you may. Um, but she refuses, right? Good for her. Um, but the king is furious, and he, she is out as queen, basically. So now he has to find a new queen. And so he does this just as indulgently as his long party that we see. So young virgin women across the empire have to come and be prepared to meet the king. And so this is where Esther comes into the story. Um, some refer to this as a beauty pageant, but basically for 12 months, they are going through beauty treatments um, to prepare for their one special night with the king. And they each get one night and then they're sent off to live with the other women, basically to live as concubines, um, unless they're summoned back by the king by name. And so Esther goes through this process. She spends her night with the king. He is, falls in love with her, whatever that means. And he decides to marry her and make her Queen Esther. Um, and so she becomes queen, does her duties, you know, interacts with him when she's called upon. Um, and over, oh, thank you, <laughs> over time, it seems like she's interacting less and less with him. Um, uh, let's see, so mind you, this whole time she's keeping her identity uh, as a Jewish woman a secret per her cousin Mordecai's instructions. So now we learn that um, she is cousins with Mordecai, who is important in this story as well. Okay, later, I'm skipping a lot, later we see the king is appointed a man named Haman to be basically his right-hand man, right, the highest-ranking official. And so as the highest official, the king commands all the servants to bow and kneel before Haman to honor him. 
Um, but Mordecai is one that refuses, right? And when Haman learns of this, he's very angered by it. He hates Mordecai now. And so he not only wants to punish Haman, but when he learns that he's a Jew, he decides, I'm going to take out all the Jews. Um, and so he gets the king to issue this decree to kill all the Jews, and he casts lots to determine the date of this genocide, essentially. Um, and Mordecai hears of the decree, tells Esther what's going to happen, and says, you should do something about this. And Esther is like, oh, okay, but I'm really scared because the king hasn't called upon me in a long time, and if I just go up to him, I, without an invitation, I could legally be killed, right? And so then we pick up in chapter 4, verse 12, and it says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather, all, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she decides to talk to the king. She strategically invites the king and Haman to a couple of dinners, and then ends up revealing to the king that Haman wants to kill her, her family, and all the Jews. And this, outrage, this is an outrage to the king. Um, and so he has Haman killed, and all of his sons are killed as well. Um, and then since the king's, it sounds like the king's decree can't be reversed, Mordecai and Esther help the king drop a new one that declares that the Jews can defend themselves on the date that they're supposed to be killed. Um, and when the day comes around, not only do the Jews defend themselves, they end up killing 75,000 people. So again, don't do as they do, right? Um, they did not teach me that part in VeggieTales. I don't know why they skipped that part. Um, but what I do remember going up learning this story is that line, right? For such a time as this. Maybe you've come to your position for such a time as this. And I think that when I was growing up, this was around like the purpose-driven life era, if you remember that book. So the message was really similar, in my memory at least, right? Use your position to save others. God has given you this purpose and this position in life to use it for his glory, and that's kind of how you live out God's will, right? That's how you're a good Christian. And it sounds really nice, right? This beautiful young woman wins a beauty pageant, becomes queen, and uses her power to save God's people. But unfortunately, Esther's story is not so simple, and it's not like a fairy tale at all, right? It was very, very hard and difficult. Not only her path to becoming queen, I'm sure that was very difficult, but also I'm sure being stuck in this marriage and um, being queen was also very hard on her. And now she hears that her people are going to be killed too, right? So Esther was in a lot of disorientation for a good chunk of her life. And maybe you felt like this as well. Maybe if you felt like Esther before, maybe you felt stuck when she had to decide what to do. Maybe you're tired of going through seasons and seasons and seasons of disorientation. 
Um, or maybe you just feel like there's no relief, right? Like she's already gone through all this and she's in a stressful situation. And then yet another thing comes up that you have to deal with. I know I felt like that, like uh, the hits just keep coming, right? And a lot of times when we are in disorientation and when we're stressed out, our brains and our nervous system go into survival mode, right? So our fear kind of takes over. I think Tim talked a little bit about this in our panel the first week of our series, right? But basically our fear has taught us like, okay, this is the way that you respond to help you survive. So when we talk about it, we often use the fight, flight, or freeze modes. Um, and in times like these, the voices of our fears can become really loud and really prominent in our minds. Um, but for, for many of us, when we experience this fear or this stress or this overwhelm, we may like experience it in our bodies and we may feel like, oh, I just need to react, but we don't often know like what our fear is actually telling us, what it's actually saying. Um, so I thought it'd be helpful to kind of tune in and try to understand that a little bit more to hear what messages are actually being told to our brain instead of just responding. And so there are several frameworks for looking at this and our different fears, how to influence our responses, but today I chose Enneagram. So here's a really short, brief list of the different types. So sorry if you're unfamiliar with it because this is not super informative, um, but afterwards happy to share more resources and talk about it. Um, but essentially, like most personality typing, um, each of us have a predominant type uh, of these nine types. Um, and I did want to share what Pastor Stan shared with me about his Enneagram. Um, he shared that he believes that each of us have been resourced with all nine types, but one is predominant, um, and that the Holy Spirit provides resources to activate those resources from the other nine types um, that maybe is not our usual orientation, right? So this can happen in disorientation. Um, and then as we move to the R part, the reorientation, it can be developed into our character in a way. And so I like this way of looking at it too because it reminds me like, okay, all types are valuable. There's no better or worse one. There's no right or wrong way to feel. And we can access different um, parts of the type. And I think a lot of times, depending on our emotional state and our health, we can feel like we are connecting or moving towards different types. Um, so while we all have our one predominant type, um, that's not to say that you are boxed in or limited to the resources of each type, right? And as we go through this, just to reiterate, the purpose is not to classify yourself or limit yourself, um, but instead I wanted to share this quote from an Enneagram teacher and practitioner, Chi Chi, and she says, the Enneagram is not just a typing system for self-knowledge, it can also be a tool for collective liberation and healing. So hopefully as we go through this, it's not just for you to just bring understanding and knowledge, but also look for what maybe the next steps in healing are too, and how we kind of react um, in disorientation and how we can move to reorientation. So. Um, part of the Enneagram is not only the types, but it talks about like core desires, core motivations, and core fears. All are important, but today I just am highlighting the core fears because that's what we're talking about today. So I pulled these and kind of summarized it from Enneagram Explained, so they have fuller descriptions on their site. Um, but 
go ahead and look through them. I'll kind of briefly go through them and kind of use Esther as an example. You know, we, again, we don't, we, all we get is those two sentences of, you should do this. And she's like, okay, I'll do it. And we don't know really what's going on in her mind, but uh, to help us kind of get an idea, we can kind of guess, I guess, what she may be feeling. And so um, <laughs> for type one, that's like the perfectionistic, moral, ethical type. So they have a fear of being bad, being wrong, making a mistake. So I could see Esther falling into this category. Maybe she has Force, she's forcing herself to do it because she feels like, I should do this. This is the right thing to do. This is what a good person would do. Or maybe she feels like, I have to be obedient to Mordecai because um, he raised me. And so I could see her falling into that one. Type two is like the helper, right? So they have fear of not being needed, being unwanted, being unlovable. So I could definitely see this fear motivating Esther as well. Type three, not the achiever, so fear of not being valued or a failure, not being admired. Um, we have type four, which um, their fear is like having no significance or identity. So maybe in this case, maybe she really did take Mordecai's words to heart, like maybe this is my moment and I was put here for such a time as this and this is my way, I have to like earn my significance. Um, type five, they want to uh, have all the information and feel competent, so they fear like being overwhelmed um, or being invaded. Type six, having no security, no support. I imagine if her whole family was killed, that she would definitely have this fear of being alone, being abandoned. Um, type seven, being deprived, limited, trapped in emotional pain. Um, type eight, being controlled or weak or manipulated is a big fear. Um, and type nine, they're being separated, conflict, tension. This is Daniel, so I kind of interrogated him, like, what would you feel if you were Esther as a nine? And he's like, I don't know, overwhelmed. Um, but for him, right, a big thing is like, it doesn't matter what I want, it doesn't matter what I want, I have to save the people. And like, in his mind, it's like, there is no other choice. Like, why would anyone choose otherwise? You have to obviously put these people's needs above you. So maybe Esther was feeling like a nine, like Daniel too. Um, and so, yeah, sorry, that was a very quick, brief overview. Um, but you may have noticed that in all of my examples, when I was talking about her acting out of fear, um, she doesn't really sound like she wants to do it necessarily, but she's more so just trying to avoid another negative outcome, right? So a lot of times when we're acting this way, we use a lot of language like, I have to do this, or uh, I should really do this. Um, or like Daniel said, like, it doesn't really matter what I want. This is just what has to be done, suck it up. Um, when we hear language like that, you know, some call it being pushed into a decision or task, right? So our negative emotions, like our fear, our anxiety, our stress, those are the things that are pushing us to act, almost like pushing us into a corner, so we feel like we have no other choice. Um, so you feel like, oh, I have to do this, or else I'm gonna be a failure, or else I'm not a good person, or no one will love me, or I'll have no meaning. And that is completely natural. I think all of us have felt this way. All of us have been pushed into decisions and tasks out of fear, right? It's just how we've learned to survive, because. No one wants to feel unloved or like a failure, right? So this is just how we've learned to cope, um, to avoid those negative feelings. 
And on top of that, these messages are reinforced everywhere, right? Even in like Christianese or an Esther story, we may have learned that we have to make a certain specific decision or else God won't love us or we won't be fulfilling our purpose or maybe even God will punish us. It kind of, it kind of sounds threatening when Mordecai's like, well, you're gonna die anyways, right? Um, and so maybe we've kind of internalized that, okay, there's these exact decisions that God has called us to and if we don't follow it, we'll essentially ruin his whole plan, right? Which Sounds ridiculous a little bit when I put it that way, but I'm sure I felt that too. Like his whole world is, my whole world's gonna crumble if I don't make this perfect decision, right? And so just think about like how much pressure we put on so many of our decisions, right? All from like picking the right meals, picking the right college to go to, the right job to start, the right person to date, the right daycare to put your children in, even the right ministry to serve in, right? For so many of us, every single step carries so much pressure and weight. And this is not to say like those decisions are not important or it doesn't matter because they are very significant decisions. But sometimes it moves to feeling like a very heavy, heavy burden to carry to make the perfect decision every single time. <laughs> um, but I'd like us to think, like, what if God could work no matter what we chose, right? What if God cared less about us making the right choices every single time and cared more about us as whole, healthy humans, right? I believe God is inviting us to a new way. So what if when we're faced with a decision, instead of God pushing us to make the quote-unquote right decision, what if God is inviting us just to draw closer to them and to our whole authentic selves and to others? Because I don't believe God pushes us into decisions. I believe that they invite us with love and care and empathy. And even though disorientation is tough and heart-wrenching and draining, I believe there's always an invitation to connect with God and with ourselves and with others. There's always an invitation to more love, more authenticity and connection. So when we're feeling like we're in disorientation, um, it's never a way, even though we want to, even though our fear is like, let's avoid this, let's never experience this again. I don't think that in God's invitation is okay, how do you find a way to get out of this orientation, disorientation as quickly as possible and never experience it again, right? It may lead to more disorientation when we make our choice, right? Like for Esther, it kind of did. It led to an even scarier situation where she had to put her life on the line and go and approach the king. Um, but she also did not do this alone, right? She accepted... God's invitation to take this step, and she also accepted God's invitation to connection with others, which is why she tells Mordecai, like, to go gather others and fast, and I'm going to fast, and I'm not going to do this scary thing alone. And when I was thinking about um, other more current leaders like this who invite others to the process and who are very community-oriented, I particularly thought of um, black female civil rights leaders. 
Um, so I think of like this quote by Audre Lorde, without community, there's no liberation. I also studied Ruby Bridges. Um, in 1960, she was six years old and she was the first black child to attend and desegregate the all-white William France Elementary School in New Orleans. Um, and I read about how she walked through crowds of angry, threatening protesters every single day, right? So she's essentially choosing to literally walk through disorientation every single day that school year. Um, and she talked about how her father couldn't go with her because as a young black man, that's a very dangerous situation. And so her mom would go with her and she once shared that my mom would take me to school and then she would go and sit and pray with, for me until three o'clock until I walked through that door. And so even though she was maybe in the classroom with just her and her teacher, she was never truly alone in this process. Um, and she walked through that disorientation because like Esther, she accepted the invitation to deeper and more connection with others and to take the first step for our collective healing and liberation. I think these women, you know, Audrey, Audrey Lord, Ruby Bridges, I didn't mean to say like I know her, Aud my friend Audrey, Audrey Lord, Ruby Bridges, Esther, they all understood that they needed others to help them through this disorientation. And they also understood that going through this was not only for their own benefit or for their own good, but for their community as well. And so I hope that you don't take from this like, okay, now I don't have to just make a decision that's for my good. I have to think about everyone else's needs and their good too, right? Because that's not the point of my story. Um, <laughs> there's still no perfect decision that I could prescribe to you and tell you this is exactly the step you should follow to make the right decision to move to reorientation, right? But instead, when you are faced with a decision or a difficult situation, I invite you instead of looking for right or wrong or for the good or bad, instead look for God's invitation, right? Where are they inviting me to more connection, to more wholeness and health with God, with myself, and with my community? Where is God already working and moving? Because even if we don't always see it right away, kind of like in Esther, we don't always explicitly see it, God is always working and he's always moving. We may not see God and his involvement like in Esther, right? We don't know if he put her in this bad situation or if bad things just happen to people because we're in a broken world, right? It's not like Job where we hear the dialogue of God telling them, yeah, do this to Job, do this to Job. But we do know that no matter why, the reason why she's in or the cause that she's in this disorientation, that God can still use it. Because God is bigger than all of us and all of our individual decisions and can work despite us as much as they work through us and with us. And so in that sense, I think um, Mordecai was right, right? Like, the Jews could have been saved either way, whether Esther stepped up or not. And if Ruby Bridges never went to school that year, probably at some point they still would have been desegregated. And though it's easy to look back now and say, of course Esther and Ruby made the right decision, why would they make any other choice? I'm sure at the time, many people told Ruby's family and her teacher that they're making the wrong choice. 
But now when I hear Ruby share, she's older now, and when she talks about it, I love hearing her talk about it because a part of her knows that she did do something really important. And I think she talks about even as a six-year-old, she kind of knew that this was a really big thing. But then she also talks about how once she got through those crowds, she was just really excited to see her teacher and spend time with her teacher that year. And so a part of her was truly drawn into this decision. And I think that's what God desires for us, to be drawn into what comes next in our lives, right? To be drawn to God, to be drawn to our people, and to be drawn to who God created us to be. And so up here we have some reflection questions that, um, like last week, we're just going to take some time to think about um, and talk to God about. And as always, when we're done, we encourage you to share with safe people what came up for you. Um, but yeah, I just want you to take some time. Like, what's been going on for you? Is there a season of disorientation that maybe you're currently going through? Maybe you can even use one that you recently went through um, if you feel like all things are good right now. Um, but I want you to think about like, okay, how was I actually feeling about this? Maybe did any of the fears that we kind of talked about, did any of those resonate that I can recognize now? Um, and then how is God inviting you to draw closer to them and to your whole self and others, right? Not just what should I do, but like where is God? How do I draw closer to them, to myself and to others? Um, and then finally, kind of like Esther and Ruby, right? What resources do you have that you may not have tapped into yet? So maybe it is people, maybe it is drawing on your community, maybe it's the prayer team, maybe it's a your life group, or maybe like we talked about, there's other resources within the other types that you could draw on and kind of lean on. There's a whole myriad of ways that you can um, draw on other resources that in times when we're stuck or when we're in disorientation, we don't always see. So it's helpful to sometimes take a step back and think about the other ways that God has provided resources for us to help us through this season. Um, so the worship team is going to come up and play a little bit, give you some time to reflect, journal, pray, talk to people. Um, and I just hope that this also is a no-pressure situation and that you know no matter what comes up, right, even if it feels like maybe nothing's really coming up and you're just sitting in silence, like, that's okay, too. God is still using this, and he is still working in you, um, and he is still for you.